When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, October 12, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington. It's TG Tuesday. Joined today once again by Tony Greer of the Morning Navigator. Let's take a look at markets. I would say it's flat to down here. Uh, the big loser of the day is the Dow Jones Industrial Average off 0.34%. Uh, that closes out at about 34,378. No major momentum uh, there today in markets on the U.S. equity side. IMF cuts its growth forecast, cites inflation and uncertainty of potential rate hikes ahead. The industrial complex, excuse me, the energy complex continues to rise, especially oil. I know Tony Greer will have a lot more to say on that. Finally, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta President Raphael Bostic saying transitory is a dirty word. Tony Greer, jump in here. What do you think about that? Uh, the, you know, really hawkish comments coming out of President Bostic. Uh, let me just read this to you just to get your reaction yeah. on this. It is becoming increasingly clear that the feature of this episode that has animated price pressures, mainly the intense and widespread supply chain disruptions, will not be brief. I've adjusted my dot plot submission to reflect much greater growth, much more in terms of jobs and also higher inflation. Uh, Tony Greer, what are your thoughts there? You and I, we've been talking about this for some time. Raphael Bostic pulling no punches. Yeah, I mean, I love it when they talk dirty, if they're going to call transitory a dirty word and finally come around to agreeing with the bond market, then that might be better for all of us in the end. You know, I think uh, it's pretty amazing that the bond market is sending its own message and it feels like Federal Reserve officials are now trying to get kept caught up with that, Ash. You know, as we uh, we pay a lot of attention to weekly closes around here and I have to mention the tell in the bond market from last Friday, right? Because last week, 10-year yields, for example, went from 1.46 to about 1.61%. Um, Two-year paper was bidless last week in utter collapse, right, which is signs of inflation with yields going higher. Now, we yields were going higher right into Friday where we got that GDP stink burger that came out where we got only 200000 non-farms versus 500,000 expected. We got a little Bidenomics starting to click in there. The bond market should have stopped in its tracks and said, hold on with rates going a lot higher right now, right? You would have thought that would have been a rally in treasuries at some point, but treasuries kept selling off right through that number and closed on the lows last week with yields at the highs. So I think when you're Fed officials and you see that, and you see the commodity prices gone wild, like we've seen, you have to come up with some sort of pithy adjustment to the knucklehead that was calling all of this inflation transitory. 
So it sounds like they're finally coming around and, and getting in sync with the markets. And we'll see what that means for policy. But for me, I've just got my eyes on the bond market and the market-based inflation indicators. And I still see that we are going to have, you know, we just saw a break higher in the break-even five-year this week. Yields continue higher. The curve is kind of bending a couple of different ways. But I think the market is finally picking up. Commodity inflation is going to be with us. Yeah, by the way, to add to precisely that point, Tony, Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida also out with remarks this afternoon saying, quote, a gradual tapering of our asset purchases that concludes around the middle of next year may soon be warranted. I'm not sure how to interpret that, but it certainly sounds like Mr. Clarida is saying we need to stop by mid-2022. That would seem to be an acceleration of the taper. Uh, again, a hawkish sign. Uh, from a Fed official, a very senior Fed official, the number two person over there. Uh, yeah, and one that's also under the microscope for trading his own account in front of the Federal Reserve orders, too. So I'm not sure how much credibility they all have. We have to listen to the message that they're sending. And if they're sending a message that, you know, we're going to have to be dealing with slightly higher rates and more inflation in the picture, then that's what we should be prepared for. Although we've already been prepared for that on our own because we've been more studious than they have in following the markets, right? If you want to talk about energy ash with uh, oil peaking above $80 in WTI this week, I think that that's a handle that's likely to stay with us. Hey, Tony, uh, let me jump in and just actually take a look at that chart. We were just talking about this. I'm going to share yeah. my screen here for a moment. I'm not sure uh, if you're going to get a little bit of a, of a dropped frame uh, as we bring this up. But it's an important point to uh, to to point out uh, that let's just take a look here. I've got a chart right now. I don't know if you can see that, but right now we're looking at the WTI crude chart uh, here going back 12 months. Look, it's pretty simple what you're seeing, a low of 35 spot 79. Uh, and at the time this snapshot was taken right at the high 80 spot 55, we've more than doubled uh, here with this chart uh, in the last 12 months. What are your thoughts? Um, I would like to be playing Stevie Wonder, Isn't She Lovely, alongside that crude oil chart, because it just broke through to a new high. We just broke to a new handle. Um, for those of you that are in the trenches in the oil markets, um, spreads have tightened up considerably. We just had Novi Dees trade from 40 cents backwardated to 75 cents backwardated. We just had Dees March trade from $1.65 backwardated to $2.20 backwardated. And when the curve tightens up like that on tighter supplies, it's going to be a long time, I think, before we see the price turn around and take a nosedive. So it seems to me like as we go higher, the case for crude oil builds itself, right? It's almost something that it feels like the administration wants to point to so that they can say, see, we need to make this green energy transition because fossil fuel prices are going out of control, sort of without acknowledging the fact that they may be helping the fossil fuel prices do what they're doing. So it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty sticky situation. But if you ask me, I mean, today we just built a much stronger case for the oil bulls this week than, say, we had built two weeks ago where spreads were kind of you know, humming along on a big pullback. But now that they've broken out again, crude oil's back up above 80. Um, you know, the natural gas market is still on fire due to power generation problems across the pond, due to serious demand here. And I think that's just going to let them bid to the fossil fuel market for, you know, several months to come, Ash. 
Yeah, we should point out backwardation, uh, the spot price higher than the futures price uh, right now uh, in terms of looking forward on the curve. Let me just, while we're playing the check of the chart game, I want to look at one other chart here because it plays into some of the broader themes that we're talking about here. Um, and I just want to throw this up. This is the payrolls uh, changes since January of 2020. You know, this is a really interesting chart. You look at that absolute cliff face plunge on the left. Uh, no surprise what that is. That's the COVID uh, crisis. That's lockdowns. Uh, and what you see is it looks like we lose about 22% of payrolls here uh, in the U.S., which is obviously a horrific, horrific number. What do you see when you look at that recovery stair step up to the right? You see jobs coming back very quickly at the very beginning of the uh, of the recovery. And then you see that rate start to taper smaller and smaller stair steps up. The last one, as you point out, around 200,000, 194,000 new non-farm payroll jobs added. But look at where it's stuck, right at the minus 5% mark. That means you've seen the collapse from the levels that we were at 5%. This is a huge jump. On this chart, it looks relatively small because you're looking at this horrific uh, drop uh, during the beginning. But that is a huge number of payrolls to be down from your baseline, Tony. Yeah, you know, it's it, now we're going to run into a much different situation, I think, and, and a situation that maybe we've never seen before in terms of payrolls, right, Ash? I mean, we shouldn't ignore the Southwest Airlines story that's going on right outside the window. You know, they canceled several thousand flights. Um, they're kind of doubling down on the idea that it doesn't have anything to do with the vaccine or or people that don't want to take it that work for them. They're calling it, you know, a worker shortage kind of thing, which is kind of technically what is happening, but I feel like that's skirting the issue. They don't want to deviate from, you know, the the party line here. And I think that that is going to cause more and more people to understand and maybe be empowered that they aren't going to follow the party line of getting vaccinated either. There could be other industries that face the same troubles that Southwest is facing. And so I just want to speak candidly about, you know, some of the challenges that the job report is facing. Right. It's just one of these realities right now, whether we like to talk about it or not. But I don't want to take sides on the issue. I just want to point out that, you know, there are people that are simply going to say, I am not going to get vaccinated if that's my terms of employment, like seems like they've happened at Southwest Air. And that's going to cause major problems across the economies if those people start striking, not showing up for work and that spreads to other industries. Right. So as traders, I just want you know, we have to be aware that that's something that could happen that could shake up the tape, right? I don't say that for any other reason um, to get to any other point in the discussion other than let's watch what it does to the tape if we continue to see disruption of industry, right? Because that's going to mean political ramifications. It's going to have market ramifications. And it's just something that we can't turn a blind eye to, right? That's all I wanted to say about the, the employment situation that I think we're in now. That's fair. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Yeah, to shift gears here just a little bit, talking about the party line, which is a really interesting sort of way of thinking about this. IMF came out with their report today. I mentioned it at the top of the show. 
you know, these IMF World Economic Outlooks, the Global Financial Stability Report, these are um, sort of what serious macroeconomists look at. This is the way that uh, the, the sort of the frame gets set. Now, you may have a disagreement when you hear macroeconomists talk among themselves. They'll often talk about their predictions relative to the IMF forecast. They believe growth is hotter. They believe it's decelerating relative to the forecast. So you really use that as your frame of reference in the macroeconomic space. And talking about the official party line, there's some concerning language, I thought, in this report as they cut their growth forecast. Let me just read you a couple of key quotes here. Policy choices have become more difficult, confronting multidimensional challenges, subdued employment growth, rising inflation, food insecurity, the setback to human capital accumulation and climate change. And this is the key for me with limited room to maneuver. What they're saying is that there's limited policy space on the fiscal side and on the monetary side for central banks and for governments around the world uh, to address this. The old cliche is there aren't enough bullets in the gun. It strikes me that that's what they're talking about here. And one more quote that I wanted to read to you. This is from the GFSR. This is the Global Financial Stability Report. And this also, I think, has some note of uh, kind of, uh, of premonitory sort of threat. Quote, Despite some improvements since the April 2021 Global Financial Stability Report, financial vulnerabilities continue to be elevated in a number of sectors, masked in part, masked in part by massive policy stimulus. Policymakers are confronted uh, with a trade-off, maintaining near-term support for global economy while preventing unintended consequences and medium-term financial stability risks. A prolonged period of extremely easy financial conditions, while needed to sustain the economic recovery, may result in overly stretched asset valuations and could be fuel for financial vulnerabilities. If left unchecked, these vulnerabilities may evolve into structural legacy problems, putting medium-term growth at risk and testing the resilience of the global financial system. To me, the TLDR there for policy action, for, for monetary stimulus, for fiscal stimulus, it sounds like the IMF is saying, damned if you do and damned if you don't. Could be the case, Ash. There's a lot to unpack there, probably in line with, you know, Goldman Sachs lowering their GDP estimates. You know, people are looking, I think, it sounds from the risks that he is mentioning that there is an acknowledgement that we could be in a sort of stagflation phase of the economy that we don't really want to talk about too much that may still be good for the equity markets. It may not be. Um, my guess is it's not as good as the situation that we were in several months ago where we were kind of hoping for some inflation to take hold. So, I, you know, all of the economic downgrading is is to be heated. And because this is really where the rubber hits the road with major inflation, right? It, it, it's that we're getting to the point where it will start turning consumers away. Um, the sticker shock from gasoline prices, from food prices is going to be something to contend with. And it sounds like, you know, they're trying to get out ahead of that in as much as they can, knowing that it's a very real risk to what they're doing. That's my sense, Ash, if that's fair. Yeah. And I'm curious, as you hear all of that, how do you interpret that through your lens, which is looking at the tape? You hear, obviously, talk of risks, talk of downgrade, talk of inflation inflation warnings. When you look at the tape, what are you looking for and what are you seeing? Yeah, Ash, I'm still looking for the market-based inflation signs to show me the way. Um, 
as long as the S&P can contend with all of this taper talk that we've been seeing, right? And as as you were speaking right at 4.15 on the nose, Bullard came out, says he'd support Fed starting the taper in November, right? To follow up on the Clarita statement that you mentioned earlier. He also yeah. said inflation risks are to the upside, right? This is, seems to be now the party line coming out and saying, okay, gang, like we better start getting ahead of what's happening. So I guess you have to pay really close attention to bond yields to see if they start rising to a point that it is makes it difficult for the S&P to rally alongside it, right? Um, the rate of that move, the rate of change in yields is everything to me. If you recall last week when we had... Um, you know, we had that really swift move, excuse me, two weeks ago, when we had that swift move in the bond market from 128 to 156, right? That was extremely bullish, the dollar that held up the commodity rally for a little while. And then last week, we had a week where the dollar was flat and yields were kind of slowly working higher. And now look what happens to commodities when that happens, right? Hold on. Last week, what did we see? Oil and gas up 5% with the dollar standing still. Um, we saw iron ore and aluminum up 4%, aluminum to a new high with the dollar standing still. Copper recovering up 3% from its deathbed, looking like it was about to curl over. And Bitcoin rallies 15%, right? So the inflation hedges come alive, the commodity trade comes alive, and everybody is very focused on whether or not the S&P will be able to sustain this move higher in yields. So I think that that's the big battle. What I think that it translates to is something that we see a little bit of on our screens today, um, where you see a sector like semiconductors off 1%. You see FANG stocks off 75 basis points, social media off 60 basis points. What do they all have in common? That's the tech side of the market that's pulling back. What do we have on the upside today? We have gold stocks rallying, you know, kind of out of character since they've been under so much pressure but they've gotten back that uh, inflation hedge feel to them, perhaps. They were up a couple percent last week. They're up 2% today. You see sectors like retail and airlines right up there in the lead. So to me, this is all shifting from a potential you know, tech-led rally to now a potential industrial-led rally and with more attention being paid to hard assets. And that's kind of my read on what's going on here. I don't think it's gonna be fatal for the stock market. I think it's a major rotation taking place. Yeah, value been outperforming growth recently. Um, interesting sort of question. Um, you know, obviously we're getting into earnings season here, uh, getting underway very shortly. I'm curious what your thoughts are, what your outlook is for, and how you're thinking about processing that. You know, Ash, I'm always a spectator during earnings season. I'm not smart enough to see what's coming. I'm only good enough to react to what happened. You know, and and. We've been in a pretty good form in very good mode of earnings seasons in the last several. You know, earnings have coming in generally beating, generally, you know, um, surprises and upgrades, things like that. But the most important thing in the last round of commentary was that you were starting to see the CEOs chirp up and say, um, without saying the Fed thinking it's transitory, but saying, we think that this is going to be with us for a while. You know, so this is CEOs trying to clue the markets in on saying, you know, we know that the, the feds of state are over here saying that this is transitory. We're saying that we think that we're going to see this for an extended period of time. So I think that was good guidance by those CEOs. 
I would right. imagine that, you know, we'll see another leg of that or at least get an update on that. Right. We'll get an update on whether that situation is contained, whether that situation has become more dire or mm. perhaps whether, you know, with China demand easing a little bit, maybe maybe in some situations that case has been eased up on a little bit and there's not so much pricing pressure. But my sense is, broadly speaking, this is going to continue to we're going to continue to see the commodities, you know, buoyantly go into this power curve of the trade and probably put a lot more pressure on the upside of pricing power. You think that's Vice Chair Richard Clara to stop and by to give you some insight? <laughs> I would love to speak with the guy. I really would. I mean, just the, the audacity of trading in mortgage-backed securities when that's on the Fed's list to buy. There had to be a couple of awkward moments on the trading desk there. But anyway, Ash, you know. No awkward moments here, though, Tony. Never, uh, never. We're very relaxed, you and I. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting that it's fascinating to me to see how quickly uh, these folks all started singing from the same page of sheet music uh, today. It was like three hours, right? I mean, three within three hours. Very coordinated, right? Like very yeah. like guys, you know, we've got to kind of drum up the taper. We've got to drum up some of the things that might stop this inflation in its tracks, right? They saw they look over across the pond or around the world and they saw China was able to take 20 percent off the iron ore price. I'm sure they would love to figure out how to do that with the crude oil price or the natural gas price, um, you know, because like we said, at some point, it's going to get politically uncomfortable for these policies to continue. So I, I don't want to get to the political side, but it's all happening on our screens. And by the way, talking about earnings, let me throw one additional spanner into the works, which is the question of accounting treatment. I want to go to this clip here. This is from uh, talking right to the very heart of earnings. Let's go to Jack Farley and Ophir Gottlieb. Uh, this is published today on the Essential Clear Tier. Let's take a look at the clip. Every fundamental analyst, every fundamental analyst, all of them, even Warren Buffett, they have one fundamental blind spot. And it's the assumption that the numbers on the financial statements are accurate and reliable. <laughs> Forensic accounting says, I don't really care about that stuff and extrapolation. What I care about is how accurate and reliable are, is the accounting. Well, there you have it, Tony. What are your thoughts on that? This idea that fundamental analysis, uh, it's almost a truism. Fundamental analysis is entirely dependent on numbers and financial statements being accurate and reliable. God, the last thing we need is a major accounting scandal right now. Yeah, that's a good point, Ash, right? During the sort of golden age of fraud, if we saw another WorldCom pop up right now, that would be like one of the worst things that could happen um, to the sentiment and to the credibility of the markets right now. So yeah, man, you know, you can only hope that, you know, you can only take these companies at face value and hope that what they're putting forward is real. If you ever get a sniff or a sense that you don't like the CEO or don't trust the CEO, for me, good enough reason not to be in a name. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites is Mark Cahotas on Real Vision talked about his wig indicator. CEOs who wore bad toupees as being unreliable. I still chuckle about that whenever I think about it. Oh, yeah. You notice those. You know what I mean? That's that's worth looking into. Mark's a smart guy. Hey, Tony, we've got a list of questions here that are just busting at the seams. Maybe we could jump in and do some uh, a quick speed round here to get some uh, of these guys in. I would love it. Let's go. All right. First one comes to us uh, from Namadi E. This comes to us from the exchange. This is Real Visions Exchange, our internal social media platform. The question to you, Tony, is he is keen to know Tony's thoughts on the cannabis trade. Does it still have legs? Oh, my man, you know, I'm rooting for the cannabis trade. As you know, I'm back in the cannabis trade, which you may know or may not know. Um, you know, it, 
I, I have to say that I stuck my nose in there after the 50% discount pullback from the highs um, after Sanford Bernstein came out with a really positive note launch on the sector, um, you know, saying that the sector is going to be with us from a wellness perspective, acknowledging that these companies are making money now, at least some of the big four are. Um, I am nervous about the price action. I'll be totally honest with you, because while Bernstein was coming out with that comment, um, call it the U.S. Uh, multi-state operators made a double bottom at like 28 and a half and managed to rally up to 32. I thought it was going to put a test of the 50-day moving average resistance level like as a lock. And what happened was volatility compressed and we never got there. And now the sector is curling over. So on a close below that recent low, I'm going to just get out of Dodge and I'm going to look to reinstate at another level, though, if that's fair to say. I think that's the best advice I can give somebody. Whereas, you know, on a 50 percent pullback from the highs with these companies that are making money, if you want to look for the value trade in the stock market, it's right there. Right. Whether or not the market is going to highly value cannabis companies at any point. I don't know, but if I want to try to buy something that's trading a couple times earnings rather than trading 20 times earnings and think that it's going to sort of find a life in this market, I'm still going to keep taking shots at the cannabis market on the dip. And I may get burned once or twice on the way down, maybe even three times. But I'm a firm believer that this sector is going to turn, get back on its feet. We need a new catalyst. We need a new catalyst beyond federal legislation. What we need is, you know, a more obvious uptake in cannabis use in the places that it's being established. So once we see that, we'll get the sector back on the run. I'm not sure that this bounce was the bounce. That's all I can say about it right now. I think it's worth trying more than once to find a bottom in the cannabis sector, though. That's the best I got. Really interesting analysis. I should say we're answering questions right now on the exchange, on the Real Vision site, on YouTube, and also on Twitter, where you can follow me at Ash Bennington. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Uh, here comes another question to us. This one also from the exchange. It's from Kavi H. Uh, it's a longer question, but I'm going to simplify it. And the question is, what is TG's view on precious metals right now? Precious metals, I don't really have a view on precious metals at the moment. Okay, I got my readers out of the way of precious metals back when um, after the Federal Reserve, uh, after an FOMC meeting, that they sort of orchestrated a dollar rally to prove that the inflation was transitory, right? With that dollar rally, gold got dismantled for about $200. Um, I got stopped out of a long position and I learned my lesson as a trader, right? If gold and silver are going to be the two beacons that the central banks look at and say, well, there are our inflation barometers and potentially attack those markets, I don't want to be in those markets, right? Um, I'm going to stay on your precious metals question and say, you know, I believe that holding physical is the way to go with precious metals. I don't know that trading gold is is the right is going to get the bang for your buck. And my view is that way because I'm a performance hound. And when I see inflation outside the window and I look for inflation hedges, 
I see Bitcoin up 300% and gold down 10%, which is my inflation hedge, right? I, I'm just going to gravitate toward Bitcoin or some of the lower grade performers that I think have been responding to the inflation that the federal central banks are creating. If that's fair, where I am right now on precious metals, I am out of the way. Yeah, we should say Bitcoin right now. Uh, trading around 55,000 off its recent highs this week of about 57,000 uh, gold. Uh, I'm seeing here on my screen looks like uh, looks like about uh, 1764 an ounce right now. Uh, silver trading at 22 spot 68 per ounce right now. Exactly right, Ash. Man, here's a question uh, for you that's that's really interesting. Uh, it comes to us from Daniel. Uh, and this is coming from YouTube. Question for Tony. Will the market belly up tomorrow on taper fears? No, you know, I don't think so. I, I'm I don't I don't and I definitely don't think on taper fears. I, I think that, you know, while you're seeing this coordination out there now, you're seeing the socialization of the taper. Right. It's it's the Fed officials saying, how do we think we're going to get this taper across the line Let's see how the market feels about it, right? So they'll pick a day like today and they'll lob three taper bombs out there into the headlines and they'll watch the markets, right? You know, the S&P took it on the chin today a little bit, you know, no major, major move, but um, no, no rally to the upside. You know, I don't see the market curling over on taper talk. If I do see, if, if my fear in the markets is on a real serious bond dislocation, where they move lower at a real rapid pace, where yields make big jumps to the upside. To me, that's the danger in the stock market. When you see days like that in the bond market, you usually look over at big tech and tech gets slaughtered, right? It's usually everything from big tech up that gets slaughtered. So um, that's kind of my view right now. With yields where they are, I'm more nervous for a rotation out of technology that may weigh on the indices rather than you know an all out all, all sector puke, if you will, that knocks the tape over and, and looks like somebody's de-risking or somebody blew up. I'm not looking for that right now. Yeah. Uh, here's a question that comes to us from Hector from the RV's website. Uh, this one actually seems like a rare question for me. And the question is, can the U.S. shut down exchanges and control crypto that way? Well, uh, can the U.S. in theory shut down exchanges like, uh, like Coinbase and Kraken? Sure, they could in theory. Uh, will they? That's a very different question. I think the answer to that is almost certainly no. It would not be in their interest to do so uh, for the obvious reason, which is when you take the regulated exchanges, the publicly traded exchange here in the U.S., uh, if you were to shut that down, it would just push, in my view at least, that uh, into a decentralized space that would give uh, the government, I believe, less control, less influence. Uh, you would effectively have the same problem that we had with alcohol po prohibition. Uh, when you get rid of the legal route, you hand it over uh, to folks who you probably don't want uh, running businesses. That's my take, at least, on it. I don't know if you have anything to add there, Tony. Nope. I like your take, Ash. Uh, listen, Tony, I, I see where I know we're about to run out of time here, but I see so many questions uh, and they're all around uh, the same point here, which is what is Tony's outlook for energy and oil in particular? We've said a lot here. We've given a lot of frame. Bring it all together for us for oil. What are your thoughts there? What are you looking for going forward? Okay, Ash, I, you know, um, I wrote a note today that was about how hard the propaganda on the green movement is hitting, right? And I'm just talking about things where media outlets are, are 
you know, chirping up about how dangerous the weather is getting. And when I hear people talking about the weather being dangerous, I worry about that being a pad for our energy policy, right? So the energy policy that we've had with the new administration has been very bullish for energy, as you can see, right? We, we closed some pipelines down. We've discouraged investment. The price of oil has doubled since this administration. The price of gasoline is essentially up 50, 60 percent, nearly doubled since this administration has taken over. So as they start pushing further with this and getting closer and closer to you know, more mandates and more emissions being cut down, it looks like the price of fossil fuels keeps going higher. So what my concern is, is that now, as you know, you have Anthony Blinken coming out and saying, hey, you know, this rise in fossil fuel prices is all the more reason for our green energy transition. When they're the people that cause the rise in energy prices, I get very worried about what's going on on the screens and in the world. Suffice it to say that. So it looks to me like oil is hitting this power curve of the trade into the 80s now, where in my opinion, it looks like it can start going up faster than it went up when it was a $30 item going to 40. Like that was a long haul because we had so much uncertainty and it took a little while to you know get to that next big number. It looks like right now 80 to 100 is like a lock to me, you know, and, and once again, we're going to talk about $100 oil because we're in this part technically of the trade where in 2015 we had collapsing prices through these prices. So now we have a chance to literally recover all the way to 100 with very little standing in our way technically. And like I showed you before, if spreads are going to tighten the way they tightened up in the last week or so over the next several weeks or, or keep any kind of pace with that, we are on track to have much higher oil prices. A lot of it stems from the crisis that we're seeing across the pond in energy in the UK. A lot of it stems from the rhetoric in China about potentially stepping off the emissions pedal and then going back to coal to catch up with their emissions, to catch up on their energy shortage. So a lot of this kind of ash stems from this global look at power and how it's translating into people trading the energy markets right now. But the one thing that's the most encouraging to me when I look at the managed futures position is that there is not a tremendous amount of length in the oil markets right now. So that's why I feel like, you know, the risk to me is that oil goes from 80 to 100 before anybody knows it, right? And, and that there come out more stories that we have to be more worried about weather and that the energy price is going so high that we have to transition to green energy faster. What is that going to do? It's going to make the actual transition more difficult. It's going to make it sloppier. It's more bullish for fossil fuels. And it probably puts a lot of pressure and strain on our power generation. So this is the sort of real, realistic look that I'm taking on the energy markets and just realistically saying that now in October of 2021, it's easier for me to be bullish than it was in April of 2020 when oil was $25. That was a really hard trade. That was mm. a trade where you had to close your eyes and look out further into the future. This is a trade where I look at my screens today and I look at the situation and I go, oh my God, 90 bid tomorrow morning, wouldn't be shocked. 100 bid next week, wouldn't be shocked. And then what happens from there? It's all about navigation from there, but I think that we're gonna be a little bit closer to crisis management with gasoline at $7 at the pump. You know, Should we start migrating towards that price than we would have 
if, you know, the energy platform was untouched and we were at two and a half dollar gasoline like we were in 2019. So that's my read on the energy markets, Ash. And I just get extremely bullish when I see inventories dwindling and prices tightening and the chart looks like it does right now. This is this is an explosive setup for fossil fuel markets right here from natural gas to crude oil to gasoline to Brent. Easier to be bullish at 80 than it is at uh, 25. That's my take on it. Yeah, quite a statement. Uh, I just want to thank everyone again uh, for watching Real Vision's Daily Briefing. On our next show, uh, we have Jack Farley and fan favorite Darius Dale. Same time, same place. Uh, in the meantime, we can continue the chat on Real Vision's Exchange. Uh, Tony Greer, always a great show when you're on board. Really appreciate you joining us. Great to be with you, Ash. It's great to talk about markets. Thank you for the questions. And um, let's hope it pans out the way we're looking at it. So far, so good. Yeah, once again, thank you for watching, everyone, and thank you for participating with your questions. We'll see you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.